0: If you have your Bible with you today, I'd like you to turn with me to the New Testament book of Romans, if you will, Romans chapter 12. And we're gonna read the first two verses of Romans 12. And today we have our next installment of our series that uh, really is, is propagated by you guys. And so uh, I've, I've been very impressed with the uh, quality of questions that have come in. And if you're here last week, you might remember that we talked about The will of God and what we talked about in particular was whether or not we should seek signs from God as as verification or direction uh, about his will and so that was kind of a a very broad uh, category a very broad question and so this week's question is very specific but it too deals with the will of God so what I want to do is I want to uh, look with you a little bit about the will of God what the Bible says about finding the will of God and knowing the will of God and things like that and then I want to apply it to the very specific question that, that was asked. And the question that was asked is this, how do we know if God is calling us to join the military and how does he feel about that? And I take the how does he feel about that to, to be a question about uh, how does God feel about Christians serving in the military as a whole? Now, before we get to our text, I'm, gonna be, I'm gonna, if, you're, if you're picturing this sermon as a house, I'm going to build a big old front porch in a smaller house, okay? Because So so what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, talk about several things about the will of God before we actually get to our text, because when we talk about the will of God, we have, to be, uh, we have to be specific about the things that we're asking and what we're talking about. And I say that because the Bible does not use the term the will of God. The Bible doesn't talk about the will of God in just one way. And in fact, the Bible has a couple of terms that it uses when it talks about the will of God. And those two terms are not used like of his uh, will of desire, for instance, and his sovereign will. There's, there's bleed over between those two things. So we have to be specific in what we're talking about because the Bible is very nuanced in some of the things that it says about the will of God. So uh, when, when we consider these things, understand that different writers and different theologians will have different terms uh, for different aspects of his will. And, and you might wanna jot some of these down just to kind of help you uh, think about these things in the future. Now for clarity's sake, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pair uh, two things up, and I, hopefully you'll see the distinction between those two things, and it'll help us uh, to focus in on what the will of God is. So for instance, the Bible talks about God's sovereign will and His, what you call, preceptive or moral will, His sovereign will and His, will, uh, His, His moral will. Now, when, the, when different theologians talk about his sovereign will, they may use terms like his will of decree, his decretive will, his efficacious will, things of that nature. And so the difference between those things is when we speak about the will of God in terms of his sovereign will, what we're talking about are those things that God is gonna bring about whether anybody likes it or not. These are things that God is going to do and no one can thwart it, no one can slow it down, no one can stop it, no one can do anything to stop God from bringing these things to pass. So, for instance, sometimes he uses uh, direct action to bring about his will. So, for instance, God said in the beginning, let there be light. Now, when God said that, the photons didn't say, you know, I'm not sure that we should do this. There, There was no discussion. There was no possibility that God's will would not be done because God acted with his omnipotent will. He willed it to happen, and it was so. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Sometimes he uses direct action like that, but many times he will use uh, what you would call means. And what I mean is he will work in and through the lives of sinful people to bring about his desired will. So, for instance, the Bible says that, that God sending Jesus to die for the sins of people was not an afterthought. In other words, God didn't create Adam and Eve. They, they, they sinned, they fell in the Garden of Eden, and then God said, oh my, what shall I do now? And then he was, then he was scrambling, trying to get the best result that he could out of the situation. The Bible says that that, that this was God's plan from eternity, and so he was not reacting to this. He was working out his will, even in the lives of these sinful choices that were made. Now, you look at that and you say, okay, well, what was his plan? His plan was that Jesus would would come to earth, that he would die on the cross for sins and he would be raised on the third day. How did he bring that about? Well, Acts chapter two, verse 23, Peter says in his sermon at Pentecost, this man, Jesus, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. In short, God's will was for Jesus to die on the cross. People made their free choice, their, 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 their very real choice, But it still fulfilled God's plan. So sometimes God uses direct action. Sometimes he uses means to accomplish his sovereign will. Uh, Psalm 135, verse 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and in the earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. And that kind of sums up this this idea of his sovereign will. God does what he wants, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. On the other hand, the Bible tells us that God has a perceptive will. His will, his moral will. These are the things that God has told us in his law. Do this, don't do that. These are things that please God. So we know by looking at his law that God does not want people to murder each other. That is his preceptive will. He, he has told us that he wants people to care for their neighbor. He's told us, don't steal. He's told us, don't lie. But we know that men, women, boys and girls break that break that will, they violate that will all the time. Probably people here today have violated some aspect of that will, even this morning. So there's his sovereign will that God's going to do whatever he wants, and he will accomplish it. There's nothing anybody can do about it. Then there's his moral will, his preceptive will, where God says, these are the things that please me, these are the things that displease me. People violate that will all the time. You see the difference between the two? Okay, so... That's one way the Bible talks about God's will. Other times, the Bible talks about God's active and permissive will. His active will, and again, there's some bleed over between these categories, but His active will is when God actively, immediately, uh, personally acts in order to accomplish His will. So, for instance, I used light before. He commanded light to be, and it was. God acted at the Red Sea, and it parted. He brought about His will by direct, immediate action. Other times, we have his permissive will now his permissive will is when God does not intervene directly in a situation now that's not to say that he approves of whatever the situation is or whatever the action is but he does not intervene to stop it so think about your life I think about mine we all sin God does not approve of that sin but God could zap us before we did it right? He could intervene so that we did not break his law he could intervene in a direct way he could turn us into a pile of ashes and he would have every right and power to do so but he permits it because in his will and in his plan he's going to use that to accomplish his ultimate ends so when we think about god's permissive will don't get the idea that god approves of whatever it is but rather it means that he does not intervene directly to stop it, he doesn't zap us and turn us into a pile of ashes. Uh, for instance, he doesn't sanction all of it. And finally, we speak of God's hidden and revealed will. Deuteronomy 29:29 29, 29 says, "The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law." In other words, there are things that God's going to do that He hadn't told us about. There are things that God is going to do. There are things that he's in the process of doing in, in our lives, in the world as a whole, that he hasn't told us these things are going to happen. Haven't you ever noticed that if, when you think back to your life and you think back maybe to when you were 15 or 16 years old or when you think back to your 20s and you think to, uh, about where you started at and where you ended up at, you said, man, I'm in a lot different place than where I thought I'd be in X amount of years. Well, God didn't tell you in his word, by direct revelation, by any other means, this is what he's doing. There are things that are hidden. There are things that are secret that only he knows. But then we also have his revealed will where he says, these are the things I'm going to do or these are the things that I want you to do. Our problem is we want to be privy to the secret things. We want to be privy to God's secret counsel. The thing is, God's not going to tell us. That's why you know all the time you see those people that say, "Oh well, Jesus is coming back on this day." The last one I saw was Harold Camping, and I always thought whenever, whenever all that was going on, I could I could just remember Jesus saying, "You know, the Son of Man's coming back. No one, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven. Not even the Son of Man knows." And I can just imagine God saying, "Gabriel, no, I'm not going to tell you when Christ is going to return. I'll tell Harold. No, God's not going to tell us the secret secret things." Of, of his plan, because if he did, they wouldn't be secret anymore, okay? So so understand, when we are talking about the will of God, the Bible focuses on us knowing the perceptive, moral will of God more than anything else. So with that in mind, I want you to as uh, look at Romans chapter 12. If you found it and you're able, I'd like you to stand with me. We're just gonna read two verses. We're gonna see some things the Bible says about the will of God, knowing the will of God, and then apply it to the question at hand as best we can. Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, your Bible may say reasonable, service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Thank you. baby. seated. <coughs> Now, there's a whole lot that we could talk about in these two verses because, I mean, Paul just stuffs all kinds of meaning into these, in, into these few words. We're going to focus our attention, though, on verse 2 because it deals with the issue at hand. And the first thing that I want you to see is that having a renewed mind is key to living the Christian life. Having a renewed mind is key to living the Christian life. First, if you notice verse 2, Paul says, Don't be conformed to this world. Now, this wording is significant because this word conformed has the idea of taking on the form or appearance of something. It has the idea of taking on the shape of a, of something. Now, I don't like paraphrases of the Bible. I just don't like them. But there is one very famous paraphrase of this verse that I think hits the nail on the head. It says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. And I think that that is, that just really captures the idea, well, the, 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 the the world around us is going to try to squeeze us into its molds. going to try to make us look like the world. Now I want you to notice in verse 2 that this is a passive uh, imperative. In verse 2 he says, don't be conformed to this world. He doesn't say, don't conform yourself to this world. He says, don't be conformed to this world. Now is he talking about becoming spherical, like the planet on which we live when he talks about the world? No, he's talking about the, 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 the points of view, the attitudes, the ways of thinking, the ways of acting, the ways of talking. All those, thing, all those things that characterize the unbelieving world. And he says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't be conformed to this world. And I take that to mean that if we're not careful, if we're not diligent, if we don't exercise focused effort, we will be so influenced by the culture around us that we'll start to act, think, and talk like everybody else. We'll not talk and act and think like Christians. We'll be talking and acting and thinking like the unbelieving world and haven't you noticed that things that that back in the 90s were, were taboo? We see it so often today, we don't even notice it. It's, it's not that we don't recognize it as bad, but we don't have the same response as we did back in the 90s because we're getting so used to it. It's everywhere. Um, some time ago, they, they had some kind of a program on TV and they were showing clips from back news programs back in the 90s and the interviews that were were being had here in Missouri, in Springfield. And I watched it, and I thought, if you were to say that today, they would lynch you. They would run you out on a rail. But today, instead of that being the norm, that's like, oh, that's shocking. Because the world works to conform us to its image. So Paul first cautions us not to think about the things uh, in life like the world does. Next he says, instead, verse 2, we need to be transformed, not conformed, but transformed. And I'm going to tell you, you actually know some Greek. You know biblical Greek. Because there's a word that's used here that's translated as transformed that we actually use, not regularly, but we're familiar with it in the English language. It's the word metamorphosis. Now, you probably remember the word metamorphosis from your days in school. What's metamorphosis? It is a radical change that happens from the inside out. So you think about a caterpillar, it goes into its chrysalis, and it comes out a butterfly. It goes in a worm, comes out flying. I mean, a radical change has happened. A metamorphosis has occurred. And Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but instead experience metamorphosis. Again, notice that this is passive. He doesn't say, transform yourself. He says, be transformed. I'm going to tell you a secret of the Christian life. You can't change yourself. Now, you can change the way that you act on the outside, but you can't change your heart. That has to be an act of the Holy Spirit. So he says, be transformed. And how does that happen? Well, verse 2, be transformed, how? By the renewing. Of your mind. The renewing of your mind that speaks of a renovation of the mind. So this renewed mind that that Paul talks about, this is is like the linchpin of this whole passage. Because it keeps us from being conformed to the image of this world. It's he does being transformed in the Christian life. And notice the third thing it does in verse verse 2. He says, But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that, here's, here's an outcome, so that you may know what the will of God is. If you want to know what the will of God is, you first have to have a renewed mind. In other words, if you are, let's say, an unbeliever, you might as well not even ask what God's will is because you don't have a renewed mind. Even as Christians, we need that constant renovation going on on the inside because the more that we become like Jesus, the the more we are sanctified, the more we are renewed, the better we can ascertain, the better we can that can prove can can discern God's will. Now, the question is, okay, that sounds great. How do I do it? How do how does my mind get renewed? Well, I think there are two things that come into play here. The first is the activity of the Spirit, because Paul says even in Romans chapter tw- uh, in in the book of Romans, not chapter twelve, but elsewhere in Romans that every believer has the Holy Spirit within them. If you are a Christian, the Spirit indwells you. That, that, that's not just for the super saints. This is every person who is a child of God has the Holy Spirit within them. And the Bible says that it is God who's at work in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God is the one who's changing your heart. Titus 3, 5 speaks of the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And as we think about this, and especially as it touches the topic of the will of God, The other key thing about renewing our minds is to be exposed to the word of God. Now, remember what I talked about. The main emphasis, I believe, of God's will in the Bible, of us knowing God's will, is us knowing his perceptive will, his moral will. And where has God told us the things that please and displease him? In the Bible. And so if you want to know the things that please and displease God, you need to read the word of God. Because that's where he tells you what makes him happy. That's where he tells you what makes him unhappy. We see it in his law. We see it in his precepts. And as we expose ourselves to the word of God often and, and drink deeply of his truths, the spirit takes those things and integrates them into our lives. And so I think John Piper hits the nail on the head, nail on the head. He says that probably 95% of our lives are just, we, we don't even think about We we don't stop and pray about everything. So, for instance, I'm not I didn't pray about what shirt i was going to wear. Obviously, Uh, I I didn't think about what I I didn't pray about whether or not I was going to uh, cut my hair today. I didn't pray, am I going to put on my shoes with them tied, or am I going to untie and put my shoes on then tie them again? I didn't pray about me doing this with my hands while I'm preaching. I, I don't, we don't pray about everything. We can't pray about everything. And so what happens is, again, I think that Piper is right. What happens is most of what we do in life, most of the choices that we make, we don't think about, we don't pray about. And so that's why this transformation of the mind is so important because that comes from the outflow. Because when our minds are transformed, it changes the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we react. And as that changes, we start to make more godly decisions. That makes sense, and so, so Paul says, if you want to know the will of God, you have to have a renewed mind. Now, you say, Pastor, that's all well and good, but you haven't answered my question. You haven't answered the question: how How do I know God's will? And that's something we all wrestle with, isn't it? I'm going to give you two or three things that I think are 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 good things to hold on to. And I'm going to tell you up front, it's not going to seem all that spiritual, but it's good. It's what the Bible tells us. So the first part, the first step, I think, in knowing God's will is to seek godly counsel. To seek godly counsel. The Bible has all kinds of things to say about seeking godly advice. For instance, Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs fifteen twenty two says, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Proverbs 19, verses 20 and 21, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And you get the idea. If you're trying to make a decision, especially if it's going to be like a life-altering decision, you would do well to find a godly, mature Christian, especially one that cares about you, and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. What are your thoughts? Get some input, especially if that person's been down the road that you're thinking about going. Say, this is what I'm thinking what do, what do you think about this? Do you, do you see a, any pitfalls of it? Do you think that would be a wise thing to do? Now understand, they may give you bad advice. They may tell you something that is exactly the wrong thing to tell you. God may want you to do X and they tell you to do H. But you know what? We're foolish if we don't at least ask. We're foolish if we don't at least consider those things. The second, the second thing is to apply the principles of the Bible to your situation. And this is a huge thing. Apply the principles of the Bible to your situation. Now, of course, this necessitates that we know what the Bible actually says, right? Because you can't apply what the Bible says to your situation if you don't know what the Bible says in the first place. Now, I'm not saying just open at random and pick a verse and say, well, this is my, this is my life verse. You know, I I heard about a woman who went to a preacher and said, Pastor, I'm going to divorce my husband and I believe that God wants me to do so. Says so in his word. What are you talking about? The Bible says God hates divorce. No. I read in the scripture just today, God says, put on the new man. So I'm going to get rid of my husband and put on the new man. I'm getting me a new one. Now listen, that's, sometimes people do stuff like that. You need to know what the Bible says so you can actually apply it correctly. Now, now, what do I mean? Well, there are a great number of things the Bible does not specifically teach us directly, and we have to wrestle with them. Should I take job A or should I take job B? Should I go to college A should I go to college B? Should I join the military? Should I marry this person or that person? Should I get into this business venture or not? And The list goes on and on. And the Bible doesn't say, Jeff, thou shalt be a preacher at New Hope Baptist Church. It doesn't say that. So what do we do? Well, again, we apply those principles to life. So the first thing, you say, well, should I marry this person or that person? Well, what does the Bible say? The Bible says don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Is that person a Christian? If no, don't marry him. I say it'd be wise not to even date him. Don't do it. What about... Should I gauge in this business enterprise or that one? Well, is that business involved in things that the Bible says not to do? Yes, don't do it. Stay away from it. Don't get involved in it. Don't invest in it. Say, but pastor, there are a lot of things I'm dealing with that are morally neutral because college A and college B, they're morally neutral because I look at them. They both offer the the, the degree I want I can go to both of them for about the same money. I can get scholarships, not go into debt. I, I, they, they both have good, solid Bible teaching churches nearby that I can be a part of. Sometimes we don't even think about that when we think about college, right? What about the, what about the churches around? But let's say all those things are equal. Then what? Well, if none of your choices violate any commands of, of Scripture, they don't violate any principles of Scripture, you're seeking to do what god wants you to do do what you want say pastor i need a sign from heaven listen the bible gives us guardrails they're like lines on the field and and they say these choices are out of bounds if you make those you if you make those choices you'll be disobeying god but within those bounds there's freedom And that's, that's liberating because many of us think we have to have a sign from heaven for every decision that we make. Well, how how do we know specifically about this question? What about the call to military service? How do we know if, if that's something we should be involved in? Well, again, I believe we should seek godly counsel from people that care about us. And And we haven't specifically talked about vocation and job and how to how to determine God's will in those situations, but just kinda of as, as a broad, just a couple sentences, we need to think about our, our, our things that we enjoy, the things that we're good at, the things that, that, that fulfill us. We need to think about those things and then try to find a job that matches them as closely as possible. Because the more that those things match, the more fulfilled you're gonna be. You ever had a job that don't match anything that you like to do or good at? or want to do what happens you hate that job now some of us work those jobs because that's what is available and as somebody has pointed out sometimes the call the the need constitutes the call so you may need to that job that's menial you may need to do that job that does not fit your skill set or your desires at all but you have to provide for your family and that's how you do so that's also a principle you got to provide for the family But in an ideal world, the more that these things that that we are good at, the things that we enjoy, the more that those match up with our job description, the more fulfilled we're going to be, the better we're going to be at our job. So you need to consider those things. So you think about how that applies to the military. Well, let me tell you, if you are claustrophobic, being in a submarine is probably not for you. If you are afraid of heights, flying jets, probably not for you. If you hate to run as much as I do military service as a whole, probably isn't for you. But on the other hand, let's say you are a crack shot. You love to run. Let's say you have uh, just a mechanical bent. I mean, you, you can look at something, see how it all works together. You can take it apart, put it back together, not have any leftover pieces. You can troubleshoot it. And there may be, there may be jobs within the service, whatever branch of service it is. Fixing helicopters, working on, again, a sub, a a jeep, whatever it is. Those things may be right up your alley. You need to consider those things. Whether or not military service is right for you is something that I can't tell you. It wasn't right for me. I used to like pretend I was Rambo and we had all kinds of of, uh, barbed wire fences. You know how rainbows always crawl under fences and getting dirty? And I used to love doing stuff like that. And now I think, well, if I would even fit under a fence, I don't even know why I would do it. But I used to like doing that. But it still wasn't for me. That was, it was something I like to think about. It's something that we have to sort out for ourselves. And regarding God's views of Christians in military service, listen, throughout Christian history, there's not been a unified view of Christians in service there has always been a, a stream of thought of complete pacifism in keeping with uh, Jesus' law of non-retaliation. And so there you think about the Amish, you think about the Quakers and so forth, they won't take up arms. They are conscientious objectors. And you think about uh, early church documents that we have, there are many of them from the early church that, that the writers had had concerns about somebody who was in service becoming part of the church or somebody who was part of the church going into service. And a big reason why, not only is because of the possibility of bloodshed, but also um, it would end up that person would be serving another master besides Jesus. But beginning about Augustine, right around the 4th century, he developed, or at least made popular, this idea of a just war. That That certain wars are unjust, but there are certain wars that are just. And in those cases, it is lawful, maybe even necessary, for a Christian to take part in it. There, there's, there's also this thought that Romans 13 talks about the government being ordained by God to bear the sword for the punishment of the wicked and the protection of the righteous. And the Christians can and, and maybe should have a part in that. My view of it is this is ultimately an area of Christian liberty. And what's important, I think, is that you don't violate your conscience. If you're a conscientious objector and you, you, you can't stand to even look at a gun, don't go into the service no matter what your family says. But if, if you don't have a problem with that, you see it as, as the possibility to be a, a fulfillment of a call of God in your life, even if, you're, even if your family says, I don't think that's wise, ultimately, you're God's servant and you have to stand and fall before them. Him, not them, him. It's a matter of Christian liberty. Now, as I said, this is a very specific question, but it touches on this larger issue of the will of God. Sometimes we just wish that God would lay it down in black and white. This is what I want. Well, if that's you, I have good news for you. He's done it. And I'll, I'll even show you how he's introduced the idea. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 3, Paul says... Sometimes we act like the will of God is hidden. It's a mystery. Here's what the Bible says. For this is the will of God for you. You want to know what the will of God is? That's a good place to start. When it says, this is God's will for you. For this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. He talk about the body. Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. It is God's will for you that you be sanctified, that you be made progressively more and more like Christ. Now I just want to give you a couple more words of encouragement. As we think about the will of God, I think many times we as Christians fear two things. The first thing that we fear is that if I pick the wrong choice, I'm at a fork in the road, and I pick this side, this side's the way God wanted me to go. If I go this way, I'm gonna mess up God's plan forever. I'm gonna I'm gonna hinder God's will. I'm gonna stop all that God could do and would do. You ever felt like that? Listen. I don't mean to burst your bubble don't be don't think so highly of yourself that you're going to stop omnipotent almighty God from doing what he wants say but what if I do the wrong thing listen all the combined craftiness and scheming and the, all the powers of hell couldn't delay God's plan for one millisecond and you an old hillbilly out in Missouri ain't going to stop it either Maybe you're not a hillbilly, maybe you're dignified. You, you can't stop it either. You can't even slow it down. You say, but what if I choose the wrong thing? Listen, there has never been a moment in God's existence that his sovereign will has not been done. Never. Now again, you say, oh, but I know, what about this sin? What about that sin? Remember we talked about his permissive will, his moral will. Many times people violate that. But God in his wisdom and his power, there's never been a time when his sovereign will has not been done. I think as R.C. Sproul said, if there's one molecule in the whole universe outside God's control, we have no no uh, hope, no reassurance for the future. So you thinking that you might mess up God's plan for the world for eternity by going to work at company A instead of company B, listen, you're not going to spin God into a tailspin. So don't let that worry you. The second thing is sometimes as it relates to, to these ways that we've been talking about about discerning God's will for our lives especially as it relates to our vocation thinking about the things that are, we enjoy the things that, that we're good at and so forth sometimes Sometimes we think, but if I miss it, I'm not going to end up where God wants me to be. I'm going to share my own experience because that's the one I know best. I think probably many of you know that I graduated from SBU with a degree in pastoral ministry. But some of you may not know that I didn't go in for pastoral ministry. In fact, I went in as a chemistry major. You don't seem near smart enough to be doing something like that. That may be why I'm behind a pulpit instead of a a test tube. But no, I used to love science. I still enjoy science, but especially chemistry. It made sense to me. I enjoyed it. It just, I just got it. God had called me a priest when I was 16. So here was my plan. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get my degree in chemistry. In fact, they make good money. I'm gonna make my living doing chemistry. I'm also gonna get a minor in Christian ministry because I need to be prepared because I do know that God's called me to preach. And at, at the same time, I understand I also really enjoy electronics, taking stuff apart and, and seeing how they all work together and stuff like that. But it's just kind of a hobby, if that. just something I enjoyed. And so I went to school as a chemistry major and I have an analytical bent. You know, I'm thinking, man, this is gonna be good for experimentation. All that. I got to college, and God made it abundantly clear that chemistry was not my life's calling. And in fact, what I should do is I should put my efforts into Christian ministry. Now, understand, when I went into school, I was a very quiet person, very backward. I just see last week how much I hate getting in front of people, made me physically ill especially to do public speaking. I was quiet, I was backward, I didn't do public speaking. Even when I went to college, I hadn't preached but a handful of times. Even when I got out of college, I hadn't preached much more than a handful of times because we had to preach a couple of times in preaching classes, awful experience. Yeah, it's not fun, it's just such a, an odd environment. I preached a couple times at an internship I did at a church in republic. But I went all the way through school and got a Christian ministry major. Still quiet, still hated to, to speak publicly. Hadn't preached hardly any. But through the providence of God, now I don't do anything with chemistry. I've been, I, I was an educator. I, was, I worked in the schools. For many years, I stood in front of classes and taught. Even though I had only preached a handful of times, God led me to a little church I'd never even heard of New Hope Baptist Church. Out in the country, in a county I'd never heard of Lawrence County. On the outskirts of a town I'd never heard of Halltown. But He still got me out here. And even though I hadn't preached but just a handful of times, God called me here. And now I've preached probably, I got to estimate, and I may be kind of off, but I'm I'm guessing probably around a thousand sermons in this pulpit. I don't do anything with chemistry. Those things I used to enjoy doing with, with computers and electronics, that's how I make my living now. And I say all that to say this, sometimes we miss it. Because if you would've asked me as a freshman in college what I thought God wanted me to do, I told you what it was. And then even after I dropped chemistry and was just focusing on Christian ministry, I thought, God's probably going to, you know, there's always a church that's needing a pastor. As soon as I graduate, I'll, I'll end up in a church. It was over a year. Colleges, seminaries, they don't typically prepare people for the unique challenges, the unique environment of a small church. And so all my, all my training, all the books I'd read were for big churches. And I came here, and the whole congregation was smaller than the Sunday school class that I left at the church where I was attending. I say all that to say this. You may be missing it. I was convinced I was doing the right thing. But God had this plan over here, and he got me here. And you say, well, if I if I make the wrong choice here, I'm not going to end up where God wants me to be. Listen, I could, I could stand up here and tell you all kinds of stuff about how God worked this situation out, that situation out, and got me here. And it was in the process of me doing what I thought was right that God got me where I was supposed to be. And you know what? Even me doing the wrong thing, those things built up and prepared me for the next step. It was all part of God's sovereign plan. And me... Making the wrong choice of uh, major when I went into school didn't stop me from ending up at New Hope. Been here for 15 years. God will get you where he wants you to be. And so don't think, again, that you're going to stop God's plan. He is a lot bigger than, well, a lot bigger than us. He, has, he, he works in Providence. He works in those situations. So, so I say all that to say this. You may not get the long-term right. You may not even get the short-term right. But if you have choices, take godly Christian counsel, apply the principles of Scripture. Again, you talk about your vocation, take those things into account, your, your proclivities, your, the things that make you happy and so forth. You do all those things, you seek to please God in your life, keep it between those out-of-bounds lines, do what you want and enjoy life. Why do you stand with me as musicians come. And as you stand, I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And as, as you stand, I just wonder, do you have some, some issue that you're facing today? something that you're seeking God's will on again sometimes we look at things we say man I really posed up in that situation I missed it you may have but that didn't even slow God down in fact God's using those situations working all things together for the good of those who love him if you have some some situation pray that God will give you wisdom godly wisdom now I've been talking to Christians well, I'm to talk to you if you're not a Christian here's one thing that the will of God is Jesus said in John chapter 6 verse 29 that the work of God is to believe on him that the Father sent that's Jesus God commands all people everywhere to repent. That includes you. And it could be that you've never done that. You've never bowed the knee to Jesus. And if that's the case, I call on you today to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we... uh, We thank you that you haven't just saved us and then left us on our own, that you've guided us. Many times it's through the ordinary, not the extraordinary. Many times it's through circumstances. We get a job offer at this place, but we don't get it at that place. Many times it's through the, the, the words of a friend, a parent, a pastor, a teacher, a coach, and they say, just the right thing to help us make that decision. We thank you that, that you speak to us in just the plain, ordinary ways. God, I pray that each of us, as we try to do things that please you, we try to fulfill your will. We try to live those things out. Lord, I pray that you'd help us not be ridden with anxiety. But help us to remember that you're in control. And there's nothing outside of your control. we can't even mess up your plan for a a half a second. Thank you for that. Thank you that your eternal plan doesn't depend on how accurate I am in trying to figure out what you want me to do. You got for that person who's making a a decision today, maybe in this case, uh, considering military service, maybe in a job situation with somebody else or whatever it is, I pray that you, again, would give them insight and wisdom to speak to them from your word. God, for that person maybe who's never accepted Christ as their Savior, I pray that you would draw them today and let them get saved. We ask in Jesus' name.